said that. All right. As you know, we are covering a series on the Ten Commandments, the Ten Pillars for Wise Living. And uh, last week, we covered You Shall Not Kill, verse 13, the Sixth Commandment. And I said that we would do two parts of that because of the ramifications of that commandment, I suppose, the other issues involved, and so we want to finish that up this week. Uh, actually, as we were going through it, again, as I was studying, I said I could do a four-part, five-part series on this, but I won't do it. I'll just manage to take all the controversial issues today in one message, get everybody mad at me all at once, get all the letters out of the way, and then we can move on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us, because of your great promises, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of you. Lord, clear our minds. Some of us have come with uh, presuppositions and predispositions that the world has pushed into our minds. And we pray that we might be open to hear what you have to say in your word. Give us your grace to think clearly and biblically in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. The Sixth Commandment is part of the second tablet of the law. The first tablet describes our relationship with God. The second, our relationship with people. And uh, in the midst of that is verse 13, You shall not murder. When I was on my way to Israel, I found out that foreign governments have started to issue warnings for their people traveling to the United States because of the amount of violence in this country saying, stay away if you can, it's a dangerous country to travel in. Uh, the United States has quite a reputation for violence and for murder. Um, there's a television program, Laverne and Shirley, that is aired in Bangkok, Thailand every week in a place where women do not act like Laverne and Shirley. Knowing that, before each episode of Laverne and Shirley is this subtitle across the television screen. The two women depicted in the following episode are from an insane asylum. They figured that they needed to give some explanation to the Thai people as to why the show was airing. Well, I'm sure that there's a lot of countries in the world that feel that in general about America. They must belong to an insane asylum because of the murder and crime in this country. Of all of the developed nations, we top the list for murder and violent crime. In fact, a recent study said that the chances of a baby born in the top 50 top the 50 largest cities in America that the babies born in those cities today have a 2% chance or better of being murdered in their lifetime in this country well in review of last week we discussed first of all the premise for this commandment is that man is made in the image of God and that life is sacred that's the premise of you shall not kill. It's because life is sacred. And only human beings can boast of that. We are made in the image of God. The dolphin, the whale, or the spotted owl are not made in the image of God. Only men and women, human beings are. 
To kill a man or a woman by murder is to disagree with God and to violate God's intention in designing that man or woman after his image. Then, last week, we talked about the problem regarding this command. The problem isn't with the command, it's with human beings. We're made in the image of God, but because of the fall of man and the sin of man, that image has become marred. Then finally, we talked about the passion behind the breaking of this commandment, and that is the sinful anger within the hearts of men and women. That murder comes from the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hatred, anger, bitterness is the seedbed of murder. Now today, I want to speak about the practical relevance of this commandment and talk about many different issues. I will not be able to adequately cover all of them. But I want to touch on them because we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments. And You Shall Not Murder brings up a whole list of questions in people's minds. What about capital punishment? What about getting involved in wars? What about abortion? Euthanasia? And actually, there are many more questions than that. A reminder, as we discussed last week, it says, you shall not murder. That's the correct term. The word refers to unauthorized homicide, not every form of killing. The rabbis of the Jewish religion would be quick to bring to our attention that there are legitimate forms of killing people. And they will quote Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to kill, and there is a time to heal. The question is, when is it legitimate, when is it wrong? Well, to form your conclusions of that question, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't base it on what your friends think or upon what popular opinion says, but upon what the Word of God declares. I've divided the issues really into two camps this morning, societal issues and personal issues, though all of them probably are both camps. I want to first talk about societal issues. And the first question arises when people read the Sixth Commandment often is capital punishment. If God said, you shall not murder or kill, why is it then that there is capital punishment allowed even in the Bible and in society still today? Well, actually, capital punishment is seen in the Scripture as a requirement, especially in the Old Testament. For, this is the interesting part, for the exact same reason that the Sixth Commandment was given. The premise of the Sixth Commandment is that life is sacred because we were made in the image of God. Capital punishment was instituted in the Old Testament for the exact same reason that we were made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. In ancient Israel, there were no such thing as a prison system. The only thing they had were cities of refuge. That is, there were three cities east, three cities west of the Jordan River. If you killed somebody by accident, you would flee to a city of refuge. You would be protected. You would await a fair trial. You would be kept within the boundaries of the city limits. 
a trial would be given you. If you were guilty, you would be killed. If you were not guilty, you could live in the city of refuge. You had to live in the city of refuge until the high priest died and somebody else took his office. Besides that, there were capital punishments given to a variety of crimes. Let me give you a small list. Number one, murder. Two, child sacrifice. Three, kidnapping. Four, sexual immorality. The population would be thinned out quite a bit today if this were still in vogue. If you were involved in incest, it was death by burning. If you were involved in adultery, death by stoning. If it was fornication by a betrothed woman, it was death by stoning. Besides that, witchcraft, idolatry, magic, astrology was all a capital offense, as was being a false prophet, interestingly enough. If you spoke something in the name of the Lord, you say, I represent God, and it was a false prophecy, it didn't come to pass, you misrepresented God, it was a capital offense, and it was death by stoning. In such cases, ancient Israel did not see capital punishment as murder, but as righteously administered judicial executions. Righteously administered judicial executions. Why capital punishment? For two reasons. Number one, if capital punishment in certain cases is administered surely and swiftly, it is, despite what some say, it is a deterrent, a great deterrent to crime. There was a newspaper published in a Texas prison by inmates, by inmates. And they polled the people and they wrote an article for this newspaper that tells us that the majority of the inmates believe the death penalty for prison murders would reduce violence within the prisons. And in this study, they said two-thirds of the inmates favored death penalty for murder, child abuse, and sex crimes. Now, there's a guy who studied this, Professor Peter Lawson, University of North Carolina. His question is, what effect would righteously administered execution do with the murder rate? His conclusion was this. Every execution of a murderer deters, on the average, 18 murders that would have occurred without it. The idea being that if a criminal knows that there will be righteously administered execution because of a crime, it will be a deterrent to crime. In fact, Professor Vandenhaeg said 99% of actual murderers prefer life imprisonment to death. And he said, what is feared the most, death, deters the most. There's a second and perhaps even a more biblical reason that biblical capital punishment was seen in place in the Old Testament, and that was retribution and restitution. You see, according to the ancient Israelites, bloodshed by murder defiled the land. In the book of Numbers, chapter 35, the Lord God says, Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who has shed it. You say, now wait a minute. That's Old Testament. All you're doing is telling me in Old Testament economy, we're New Testament believers living in a New Testament economy. Paul the Apostle, when he stood before King Agrippa in Caesarea, 
When he was brought before the trial of the Jews and the Romans, he believed himself in the New Testament in the continuing validity of capital punishment because he said, if I be an offender or I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. Now there's a person saying, I'll take the death penalty if you can find something that I am worthy of death for. In the book of Revelation, we read, He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Now today, things are different, of course. We have prisons instead of uh, many forms of punishment. Yet prisons are really the problem now, aren't they? They have become the breeding grounds for more criminal activity. 85% of the inmates incarcerated will be reincarcerated again. The average cost on society to keep a person incarcerated for a lifetime or for a length of time is equivalent to educating somebody in an Ivy League university. Conclusion, I believe, capital punishment, unfortunately, is a necessity in a wicked society. Then the question comes, what about war? What about being involved in the military? What about having a military, making weapons, guns that kill people? Involved in a police force where they carry around weapons? Um, if it helps you, even the earliest Christians struggled with this. Did you know that? From the first century, second century, they struggled with it. They wrote about it. Their question was, can I be involved in the Roman army? Can I still be a believer in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and be involved in an army or a military system? Now let me say that when Jesus Christ comes and establishes His kingdom upon the earth, that'll be awesome. When He comes and does away with all warfare, all sinful behavior, I'll be the first to rejoice. The Bible says they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and they won't even study war anymore. Out of sight. I can't wait when the $700 billion per year that the world spends on warfare won't have to be spent. But until then... We live in a time of increasing evil, not diminishing. The world is not getting better. As some of the social evolutionists have said years past. It's not diminishing evil, it's increasing evil. And I believe righteous men and women must take a stand against the tide of wickedness. To protect society from criminals, whether on a local level or an international level, now, there are many who are pacifists and they object to killing of any kind, even in wartime. And society must accommodate their views. We must. We can't be intolerant and say, you unloyal person, get out of our country, you pacifist. Everybody has the right to that opinion. I respect the right of a conscientious objector. And in World War II, they were given jobs as fighting fires in the Pacific Northwest. We must accommodate their view, though I do not believe, as a student of the Bible, in pacifism. I believe in lifting the yoke of oppression upon the downtrodden and the people who have been made victims. Think for a moment what total pacifism would mean on a personal level. What would you think if your wife or your mother or a close friend were being attacked by some villain, would you want somebody to be a total pacifist and just stand by and say, hmm, I'll observe this, 
I won't resist the evil person. Now you'd want someone to stick up for him and to put to flight the oppressor and to protect the victim. Now there are many biblical examples of warfare. Of course, Abraham, the man of faith, the example of faith, led a military campaign against many of the kings around the Dead Sea. Joshua was a military general. David fought many battles. Some of them at the approval and even the commandment of God. These men and women of faith, some involved in military campaigns, listen how they were described in the book of Hebrews. In the chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Through faith they conquered kingdoms. Through faith they enforced justice. Through faith they became mighty in war and they put foreign armies to flight. You remember when John the Baptist was down at the Jordan River? He was baptizing several kinds of people and many would come and ask, how does this ethic apply to our own personal life? And a group of soldiers from the Roman army came. And they said, what must we do? He simply said, be content with your wages. He didn't say, be content with your wages and go AWOL. He said, just be content with your wages. Jesus met a Roman centurion, a man who was a captain of many soldiers. And Jesus said, I have not found so great a faith even in all of Israel. He wasn't commending him for his military prowess, but for the fact that he believed that the servant would be healed. But nonetheless, there's nothing recorded where Jesus said, get out. Quit being in the Roman army. Simply, I have not found so much faith even in all of Israel. This is known as the just war tradition. Which states, by the way, that has been the belief of most Christians from the beginning of Christianity. There are times when war is justified against an aggressor for defense and in certain cases for offense. The just war tradition. It was started, the words itself, by a guy by the name of Augustine. St. Augustine wrote about it in great detail that there's justifiable and non-justifiable causes. Thomas Aquinas later wrote about it. The reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, all wrote about the just war tradition. If you have a Lutheran background, let me quote to you Martin Luther. He said, Without armaments, peace cannot be kept. Wars are wages only to repel injustice, but not only that, but to establish a firm peace. The idea behind a just war, just war is that force must be limited. You don't go in there and nuke everybody. Force must be limited and be discriminatory. That is, you don't take the non-combatants, only those who are the soldiers fighting the battle. It must be limited force. It must be discriminatory force. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I read the Sermon on the Mount. I read the words of Jesus, and I object. Because Jesus said, love your enemies, right? Well, how does loving your enemies square with using lethal force against your enemies? Jesus said, love them. Certainly you don't take up arms against them. Now, that was the premise of a guy, a novelist, Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, wrote a book called War and Peace. This is what he said. The first step to bringing in a utopia, so to speak, was to take away the military and the police force of every nation. He rejected wholeheartedly Orthodox Christianity because they violated the Scripture. 
Jesus said, love your enemies. How can you love and execute wrath? Well, it's easy to answer. Love and wrath can be part of the same characteristics. It's seen in God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Of the same God, it is written in 2 Thessalonians, in flaming fire, He will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same characteristics in the same person. Wait a minute. Somebody will say, read further on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, He didn't say, deck them one. He said, turn the other cheek also. But what Jesus was saying is don't take personal vengeance. It had nothing to do with society's retribution to protect innocent victims. As stated, if you read the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's inherent within it. The idea is, don't even the score. He's not saying, let evil run its course, don't take a stand against wickedness, but you don't take personal vengeance upon a person. It's referring to harm done personally. Now with that, you might want to mark in your Bible or write a note in your margin to look up Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 tells us that not only does God in some cases, ordain capital punishment and the enforcement of the putting away of certain sinful persons out of a society, locally or internationally, but he ordains the means to do that with governments. Now, this is a tough pill for many of you to swallow, but listen to what Paul said in Romans. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. I won't read it all, just a portion. For there is no authority except from God... And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And if you read further on down, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So according to the Jews, according to the Bible, it would seem that capital punishment and just war do not fall into the category of breaking the sixth commandment. But the next two issues that I want to cover do. The next two issues, and again, I won't be able to cover them in depth. It's impossible in a study like this on a Sunday morning. But that are the two hot potatoes of our society, abortion and euthanasia. Now, you can't read a magazine, a newspaper, or hear a newscast without hearing about one or the other or both, abortion and euthanasia. It is hotly debated. It is on the forefront, and people are taking up arms. Unfortunately, it's becoming a very heated issue and many are losing their lives because of it. And I disagree, I have to say, with the violent restriction in front of abortion clinics that many people have used in the past. Um, abortion. Abortion is the artificial termination of a pregnancy. Euthanasia, see, a lot of people say, euthanasia, what's that? Well, it's not a group of youth from the church going over to Asia to minister the gospel, like many people would think. Oh, yes, we had euthanasia last year. They went over. No. Euthanasia is the terminating of a life after birth, whether as an infant called infanticide or later on in life, the infirmed or the elderly based on the quality of life. 
I've placed them both in the same category because they interface with the same issue, and that is the quality of life. Remember last week we said the premise of the commandment is the sanctity of life. It's being challenged by the humanistic ethic, the quality of life. What kind of a life does that person live? That person retarded? Does that person have handicaps? Is it worth letting this person live? Is it worth letting this person continue to live? What quality of life do they have? What can they add to society rather than the biblical standard, the sanctity of life, as we discussed last week? Um, on abortion, uh, there's many opinions on this. Abortion is becoming, the proponents of abortion are becoming more and more radical in their view. One of the voices for abortions, two of them, are Dr. Francis Crick and James Watson. Incidentally, both of them were the ones that won the Nobel Peace Prize for discovering the DNA. They said, We recommend a baby not be considered fully human until three days after birth. Giving the parents a right to destroy that child if there's a defect. Then we get to the youth in Asia. And who hasn't heard of Dr. Jack Kevorkian? Dr. Death, they call him giving lethal administrations of carbon monoxide. And I read an interview this week, and, and I think it was Time Magazine or Newsweek, where he said that just being a medical doctor gives the person a right to see if a person's fit or not fit to live. And he said, I might lose this battle, but eventually we will win. Okay. In the Bible, these things weren't even an issue. Did you know that? Abortion and euthanasia were never an issue in biblical times. You know why? Life was sacred. They didn't do those things. They didn't debate those things. It was just taken for granted. Life is sacred. You don't kill what's made in the image of God, whether pre-born murder or after-birth murder. Life is sacred. It wasn't debated. If you move over to uh, Exodus chapter 21, there's a section that speaks to the abortion issue. It says that if a woman who is pregnant receives a blow and there's lasting damage, then the penalty is life for life. If there's a death that occurs, whether it's uh, uh, of the baby or of the mother, or both, then it's life for life and it was a capital punishment. All right. Let's look at ancient times for a minute. Push Israel out of the way. Let's just go to pagan nations, all right? Forget people with a biblical ethic. Let's move to people like the Hittites, the Assyrians, the people who could care less about God. In pagan nations of the ancient Near East, there was a penalty for abortion. If it was accidental abortion, the penalty was a monetary fine, you had to pay money, or you were flogged. If it was self-inflicted abortion, the penalty was death in Assyria, a pagan nation. According to the Talmud, the commentaries of the ancient Jews, life was sacred within the womb, the only time an abortion was allowed in the Talmud, and there are detailed laws about this, an abortion was allowed when the life of the mother was in danger. Critical danger. But if the child was emerging from the womb at birth, you couldn't touch it, even if the woman's life was in danger, according to the Talmud. In modern Israel, a lot of people ask about that, since the Jews are sort of the caretakers of the ancient scriptures, what about the modern Jews? In Israel today... It is a criminal offense to have an abortion or attempt an abortion. And the punishment is imprisonment. 
Now they're debating the law, of course, in the Knesset, in the courts, even to this day. Those are the laws from the early 30s. Um, I have read as much as I could on the issue, and I've had a hard time doing it because there's so much on both sides. There are many reasons why people want an abortion or stand up for abortion. There are many, many reasons. I've narrowed them down to two major issues. The first issue being, again, the quality of life. The quality of life. How can life be worth living if you're severely retarded or handicapped? What about the cost to the family, the medical expenses? What about the child being raised in a home where that child is unloved? Because there's a deficiency. The second issue is the right to choose issue, the freedom of choice. I'm an American. I'm a human being. I have the right to choose. It's my body, and if you don't want an abortion, don't have an abortion. But don't tell me I can't have an abortion, especially if you're a man, and especially if you're a preacher man. The result of that thinking is simply this. 4,500 abortions take place in America every day. Every day. Over three per minute. In New York City... The abortion rate to live birth rate is one-to-one. -one. That is the shame of this country. That is the Holocaust of the United States of America. It is ironic. Remember back to the premise of the commandment, life is sacred. And we mentioned rather in-depth last week that when a person takes that away, that all life becomes the same to him. Either you raise the standard of animal life to the level of a human, or you lower human life to the level of an animal. That's what happens. That is what has happened. It is ironic that in Maryland, it is illegal to ship pregnant lobsters to the market. No joke. In Massachusetts... The Supreme Court has outlawed the giving away of goldfish as prizes because of the state's anti-cruelty laws. Yet, the same Supreme Court upheld mandatory funding for abortions. The same court. It's often cited that it's a $5,000 fine to kill an unborn eagle and five years in prison, up to five years in prison. To kill an unborn eagle. Listen, if human beings were animals instead, they would fare much better in the courts of this land. They would be given high status and rates if they were given the animal status, that they were unborn eagles rather than unborn humans, if they were unborn lobsters or unborn goldfish. That's the irony of it. Human life, animal life, and plant life, in many cases, are put on the same level. The question that people ask then is, why have things changed so much? Why in the biblical times was it that way and in modern times it's this way? Again, it goes back to either life is sacred or it's not. Listen to the insight of Michael Gilstrap in the Phineas Report. He said, abortion is an act of religious faith. I agree with him. It affirms a belief in man as ultimate rather than as created in the image of God. It is a commitment to an alien faith that rivals Christianity at its most fundamental levels. Hey, what are people really worth? What are people worth? Some would say their worth depends on what they own, what they can do, what they can give. But not with God. The value of a person is not on how much money you have, how good-looking you are. 
if you're perfect or marred, if you can bench press your weight. God values a person because God set up the creative processes in the image of God for that person to exist. And the outcasts of society are often the ones that have the great place in the heart of God. Jesus was so drawn to the outcasts several times in the scripture. When does life begin? That's debated. According to the Bible, I can't speak for everybody's opinion, but I can speak for the Word of God because I've read it. The Word of God indicates that life begins when a zygote is formed, a genesis cell, the fusion of sperm and egg together, life begins. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, 139, the 139th Psalm, please, for just a moment. David declares, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you have hedged, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Look down at verse 13. For you have formed my inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. That literally my bones or my skeletal system. When I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Allow me to read the last couple of verses in the Living Bible. David declares, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It's amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born, and you scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. To the prophet Jeremiah, when God commissioned him to be a prophet to the nations, especially Israel, he says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet among the nations. When Mary visits Elizabeth in the New Testament, Mary being pregnant with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Elizabeth being pregnant with John the Baptist, we read that when the two came together, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. You see, the Bible indicates what doctors now know, that the pre-born child can experience, can react, and can feel, even in the womb at an early, early age. Now, I know... A lot of people refuse to call an unborn child a baby. They just refuse to do it. It's fetal tissue. It is a fetus. It is something less than human. I love the bumper sticker I saw in California last time I was out on the back of a car. It said, X fetus behind the wheel. I thought, oh, that speaks volumes. I like that. Now, while that's debated, many doctors and biologists, even pro-abortionists, agree that life begins at conception. 
Um, there's a group, Planned Parenthood. They are one of the biggest proponents for abortion in this country. They don't like to admit this. But before Roe v.ersus Wade in 1973, the Supreme Court decision, the sort of the water uh, mark of this whole thing, before 1973, Planned Parenthood put out a pamphlet which read, An abortion kills the life of the baby after life has begun. They won't admit they said that, but it's there. An abortion kills the life of a baby after life has begun. I decided to look up what Merriam-Webster says about life, since that's the debated issue. What is life? This philosophical discussion. What really is life? So I looked up what Webster has to say about life, what Americans use to define their own words. Webster says, Life is an organismic state characterized by the capacity for metabolism, growth, reaction to stimuli, and reproduction. You don't have to be Einstein to figure out that every embryo has those qualities. Every embryo has the qualities that would make Webster's definitionary for life true with that embryo. There are objections to this, and I've tried to look at them. The first objection people have is, no, wait a minute. What about liberty, personal freedom? We are guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, but remember, life comes before liberty. I can do what I want to do. Yes, that's true. You're a free agent. But everybody knows that liberty has limits. You can't do anything you want to do just because you're an American. I'm sorry. If somebody builds a house in front of your house that limits your view, you can't, because you have freedom, burn his house down. It's against the law. You can assemble. You have the freedom to assemble. But you do not have the freedom to assemble to overthrow the government. That's beyond the bounds of your freedom. A woman has the right to do what she wants to to her own body. She has the freedom of choice. And that's usually the question. It's my body. It's my right. Except the unborn child is not her body. It has its own body. It has its own DNA. It has its own fingerprints visible at three months. It has its own heart and circulatory system separate from the mother. Sometimes the blood is even a different type from that of the mother. There are differences. She has the freedom, but liberty, liberty has its limits. Second objection that many people come up with is, but it's legal. And as long as you stay within the parameters of the laws of the land, it's okay, right? Wrong. Because it's legal doesn't mean it's right at all. In this country, it's legal to be a Satanist. In this country, it's legal to be a pornographer. It's legal to be a drunk. In Nazi Germany, it was legal to kill Jews. doesn't make it right. It needs to be challenged. Third objection is, what about rape and incest? That is an issue. That is an issue that cannot be touched without a great deal of compassion. Usually when the abortion issue is brought up, one of the first things is what about rape and incest? I have a couple things to say about that. Number one, you can never judge, put it another way, you can never throw out a good principle because of the exceptions to the principle. If it's right 99.9% .9 of the time because there's a 0.1 margin of difference and exception, you don't throw it out because of the exception. Number two, Rape and incest is evil. And as evil as rape is, 
And as evil as incest is, killing the innocent party is not the answer. It's not the baby's fault. It's not that unborn child's fault. Yes, it was a wicked act, a sinful act that brought about this pregnancy, a horrible act. But you don't blame the child within the womb for what has happened. The child is not evil. Yes, sometimes the pregnancy endangers the life of the mother. And then there are other considerations. If we let this pregnancy continue, it's an ectopic pregnancy, it's in the fallopian tube, this life will die within the womb and this mother will die. And of course you need to opt for the life of the mother at that case. Perhaps someday, we can't do it yet, but perhaps that life will be able to be removed and implanted on the wall of the uterus. You can't do that now. There's death that will certainly occur, but perhaps as technology increases and medical science increases, it will be able to happen. That would be ideal. Now concerning both abortion and euthanasia, and I haven't covered euthanasia as well as I'd like to for lack of time, but I'm covering it with broad principles. The objection that many people have to both of them is finally, what about the severely deformed? Wouldn't it be more loving and more humane to terminate the life if that person's going to be a vegetable? Maybe we should wait three days after the birth. Or maybe we should cut life off for the elderly. Because after all, what can they contribute? Wouldn't it be more humane to terminate their life instead of letting them suffer in agony? Folks, it is their humanity that gives them value. Not their marketable skills. Not what can they produce for society. They are humans made in the image of God, period. And life is sacred, period. Not what they can give or produce. They are valuable simply because they are human beings. And actually, you should ask the deformed that question. Those who have survived and who love life. Back in the 60s, during the thalidomide controversy in London, uh, when uh, people were recommended to have an abortion because of the defects due to thalidomide, uh, three ladies wrote to the London Daily Telegraph, and this was their letter. They said, Sirs, we were disabled from causes other than thalidomide, the first of us having two useless arms and hands, the second two useless legs, the third of us the use of neither arms nor legs. We are fortunate in having been allowed to live and we want to say with strong conviction how thankful we are that none took it upon themselves to destroy us as helpless cripples. Here at the Delarue School of Spastics in London, we have found worthwhile and happy lives, and we face our future with confidence. Despite our disability, life has still much to offer, and we are more than anxious, if only metaphorically, to reach out toward the future. This, we hope, will give comfort to the parents of the thalidomide babies and at the same time serve to condemn those who would contemplate the destruction of even a limbless baby. My challenge to all of us this morning, and summing it all up, is to be a person in an impersonable age, to be human in an age where inhumanity is becoming more in vogue, where the quality of life has become the major issue. It's to have concern and compassion for life even if it's marred life, if it's not perfect, if it doesn't look perfect, lest we move into the realm of Adolf Hitler in World War II with his master race vision, making it legal to kill many kinds of people. 
Life is sacred. There are certain times when killing is not evil. There are certain times when killing is evil. I realize with these words that I may be addressing people who have been involved in some of these issues. Maybe you've gone through an abortion. I want to say that God is a big, loving, forgiving, compassionate God. And as sinful as it is, that's what the blood of Jesus Christ is all about. He forgives sin. He washes it away and gives a brand new start. As far as the east is from the west, He will remove your sin from you. You don't have to live under the guilt of that anymore. It can be forgiven, and perhaps you could become an advocate for that which is right and righteous after going through an experience like that. God loves you. In the Old Testament, God tells His people, in a spiritual sense, I set before you life and death, therefore choose life. The most important life is spiritual life. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? So we encourage you after the service, if you want prayer, if you want to come and talk about an issue, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus Christ, even as some did the first service, behind those three doors to my right, to your left, is a prayer room. Go back there and there'll be people available. Let's pray. Lord, it is an awesome thing to realize that we were created in the image of God. We know that that image is marred. But nonetheless, life is still sacred. Help us, Lord, to think very clearly in an age where the lines are fuzzy. Morality is challenged. Help us, Lord, not to care what society thinks we should think that we would be concerned as we live what you think. That we would not be a slave to the opinions of men. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.